The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and Today, 1969, Episode 36, September, Abbey Road, Side 2. Red is the stop at 2.08 on the dial. Now back to the Abbey Road LP with John Lennon and 208 Program Chief Tony MacArthur. John, when you got this LP together, did, did you select from uh, like a large number of tracks, or did you virtually have a, you know, not, not from a large number of tracks, uh, from a large number of songs? You see, each of us have got, you know, maybe about ten songs to contribute to an album. You can't get them all on. So when it's your turn to record, as it were, you've got to sort of pick the one you want on most, really. And so then, uh, I suppose it gets to a point of, uh, of musical balance of the LT too, doesn't it? Yeah, it gets into that. Right. Like McCartney and Lennon patched together a day in the life for the Sgt. Pepper album, and probably most of their other songwriting collaborations, the Abbey Road album sprang from a set of individual tracks. There seems to be a basic concept underneath Abbey Road, but the fact remains, Studio Wizardry brought the string of unrelated tunes to their highly poly state. The second side consists of several short songs that weren't finished at the time, so they blended them all together to make one suite of the lot. I asked Paul to think in classical terms, you know, to think in in terms of writing a symphony. Producer George Martin. Because um, that, what the boys were doing was writing the equivalent of a symphony in, in, in today's standards. And I said, think in those terms and think of form and try and think of a song that you can introduce as a particular theme and then bring it back in a different key, maybe as a counterpoint to another song and, and weave it in and, and think in, in long terms. And Paul accepted all this and, and uh, worked on the long one, which is the one side of the Abbey Road, which is one long piece. And the guys saw the sense of it, and, and they would bring in little bits. I mean, John would bring in a little ditty and say, How, can you, have you got room for this anywhere? Can we slide this in somewhere? Um, and they, they collaborated very well like that. George Harrison. Uh, side two, Here Comes the Sun, is the other song that I wrote on the album. And uh, it was written on a nice sunny day this um, early summer in Eric Clapton's garden. John Lennon. It reminds me of sort of Buddy Holly in a way. No. Yes, I see what you mean. It's, uh, it's certainly that very strong melody line again. It's a bit like if I needed someone and, you know, like that basic sort of 
the riff going through it is the same as, uh, you know, all those bells of Rimney sort of bird type thing. Yeah. Well, that's how I see it anyway. Quite a um, simple tune. with Here Comes the Sun, supposedly written in Eric Clapton's garden. The use of three-part harmonies and acoustic guitars sent George's writing reputation soaring. I don't think there is any reason for when people write songs, but it, it seems such a dramatic change for George. I don't know, you know. I mean, it's just the way he's progressing. He's writing all kinds of songs, you know. I mean, once the door opens, it, the floodgates open, you know. You can't sort of 
it's an effort to concentrate on writing certain kinds of songs, you know. Like, I prefer writing just non-melodic, straight rock, but I can't help writing other things, you know, and I think that applies to all of us, just the songs just come out, you know. Two of the most beautiful songs on Abbey Road are from yourself when we've been so used to Lennon McCartney compositions and of course, you know, people have been commenting this week about something and Here Comes the Sun, which are your own compositions. How did, how did this all happen? It's so unusual for you to contribute so much to an LP. Well, not really. By the Beatles. I mean, the last album we did had four songs of mine on and, um, you know, I thought they were all right. So, you know, I thought these something in Here Comes the Sun was okay, probably maybe a bit more commercial, but as songs, not much better than the songs on the last album. But I've been writing for a couple of years now, and there's been lots of songs I've written which I haven't actually got round to recording. So, you know, in my own mind, I don't see what the fusses because I've heard these songs before and I wrote them you know quite a while back and it's really nice that people like the songs but um, you don't look upon yourself as a late developer as regards songwriting then because it's sort of kind of hit everyone well, that way you know you know late early you know what's late and what's early what was your own personal response to the Abbey Road album how, how uh, did you feel it comparing it with previous albums I thought it was quite nice on the whole, I think it's a pretty good album. What are your own personal favourites? Which ones that I like, you really um, like? I mm. like my favourite one is, I think, Because. Oh, yeah. Just because I like three-part harmony. We've never done something like that for years, I think, since a B-side. When you were red tonight, remember <laughs> what I said tonight? If you Producer George Martin. I mean, the three were terribly good at harmonising anyway. And when we actually did the vocal backings, um, there was George and John and Paul singing as, as a trio. And well, I would give them lines to sing. John Lennon. I just asked George Martin or whoever's around, saying, uh, what's the, the alternative to thirds and fifths? They're the only ones I know. And he plays them on the piano. He said, oh, we'll have that one. And then we'd go up and record them and double-track them. And in fact, I triple-tracked the three of them. So we had nine-part harmony all the way through. And it was just like working with a very experienced, very good professional group. And they took direction admirably. And amazing, really, when you think of their, their kind of um, arrogance, if you like. And, but they accept, they knuckled down to that. The harmony was pretty difficult to sing it. We, you know, had to really learn it. But um, that's, I think that's one of the tunes that will impress most people, you know, like hip people will dig it too, mm. but straight through all the straight people will dig it and the music people will dig it, you know. It's just so simple, the lyrics are so simple. John wrote the tune. It sounds very much like a Paul McCartney song rather than John. As, as yeah, past, well, yeah, because of the sweetness of it. Paul usually writes the sweeter tunes and John writes the sort of more the rave-up things or the freakier things, mm. but this is the thing, you know, John 
gets gets into where he doesn't want to, you know, he just wants to write 12 bars. Paul McCartney. I like because on the second side. Why did you use the lyric turn me on and blow my mind in that particular song? I, I rather felt that sounded a bit passe in 1969 because it's been used so much in the past. Yes, well, they, they were John's lyrics. <laughs> but I think, you know, if they'd have been straight, yeah, no, I'm not taking any blame, but no. Uh, if they'd have been used just straight, if it had been you turn me on, you blow my mind, okay, that would have been passe. But to say that because the world is round, it turns me on. It's great. Yes, it's I like see. well, it's not mm. fantastic, but it's no. as, it's as good as that, that, good enough for me, you know. That, yeah. And it, because that, the wind is high, it blows my mind. Yeah. You know, it's much better than be, you blow my mind, baby, honey bunch. Producer George Martin. With that particular track started off with uh, John having the idea, the sort of riff on the guitar, which he played to me, and the, the basic song, which he sang to me. And what we did then, we created a backing with him still playing the guitar on that riff, and I duplicated exactly every note that he played on the guitar on an electric harpsichord, and Paul played bass. And there was nothing for Ringo to do, because he didn't want the drums it, but in fact there was something for him to do, because I couldn't, because it was so slow and meticulously, the question of ensemble between the guitar and the harpsichord, uh, was had to be each each note had to be exactly together, and I'm not the world's greatest player in time, and I would make more mistakes than John did, so we had Ringo beating a hi hat all the time to us in headphones, so we had a, a regular beat. We didn't have drum machines in those days, so Ringo with our drum machine, and that was the way we did the track. The song is about John and Yoko in their early days. It's a bit like the backing's a bit like Beethoven. Yoko was playing some of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, and John asked her to play it backwards. Uh, Yoko plays classical piano, and she was playing one day, and uh, I don't know whether it was Beethoven or something. I said, give me them chords backwards. <laughs> and I wrote because on it, on top of it. Oh, Moonlight Sonata, backwards. <laughs> something like that. piece developed from that. Oh 
Then begins the sort of big medley of Paul and John's songs all shoved together. Abbey Road was really unfinished songs all stuck together and nothing to do with each other, no thread at all, only the fact that we stuck them together. You Never Give Me Your Money was, I think, during all these business things that we had to go through to sort out the past. So it came out in Paul's song. More layered harmony with Paul's financial lament, You Never Give Me Your Money, perhaps a hint of Apple horrors to hit later. Was that written as a sort of dig, or was it written No, as I don't a, think so. I think it's just written as that's what it is, you know, yeah. that's what we are experiencing, or Paul in particular. You know, Paul always writes nice melodies, in fact, I don't know where he finds them half the time. <laughs> it's amazing for doing that. Uh, you never give me your money. It's really hard. You have to hear this because it's, it does like two verses of one tune and then it goes, the sort of bridge of it is like a different song altogether, which goes out of that into, um, this is quite melodic and stuff. Then Sun King is a bit of sort of John's thing. Adapted from a poem about a former king of France, the Sun King. Louis the Fourteenth, which has got a funny bit. It's like uh, I think John called this one "Lost Paranoias." Oh, yes. We did the the introductions. We call it a sun riff. You know, the little instrumental bit was like Fleetwood Mac before we start singing. And we did it again on the end. So when we came to sing it, to make them different, you know, so it wasn't just the same riff. We just started joking, you know, sing cuando para mucho. So we just made up. Paul knew a few uh, Spanish words from school, you know. So we just strung any Spanish words that sounded vaguely like something 
And of course, we got Chicka Ferdy, and that's a Liverpool expression, just like sort of. It doesn't mean anything, but you know, Chicka Ferdy. The one we missed, we should have had Paranoia, you know, but we <laughs> forgot all about it. We used to call ourselves Lost Paranoias. <laughs> um, cake and Eat It is another nice, nice line, too. Because <laughs> they have that in Spanish, Cajan or something, but we just have Cake and Eat It. <laughs> uh, me and Mr. Mustard. John wrote. That's me writing a piece of garbage. It's from some newspaper clipping that the title was Mean Mr. Mustard about some guy done something or other. You know, but of course the story's nothing like it, you know, it just that was it was like the newspaper title heading. I'd read somewhere in the newspaper about this mean guy who something about hiding five pound notes, not up his nose, but somewhere else. And it had nothing to do with cocaine or snorting. From Mean Mr. Mustard straight to Polythene Pam, who turned out to be Mean Mr. Mustard's sister. And in Polythene Pam, oh, Mean Mr. Mustard, I said his sister Pam, and originally it said his sister Shirley in the lyrics, so I changed it to Pam and make make it sound like it had something to do with it. And this is uh, sort of getting back into your actual rock and roll again, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit like everything, in a way, sort of not fade away, and some, uh, you know, summertime blues and everything. That's another heart of song I wrote in India, you know. That was me remembering a, a little event with a woman in uh, Jersey, an island off the French coast which belongs to the English, and a man called Roy something who was England dancer to Allen Ginsberg. Uh, he was a beatnik that looked like a beatnik and he came and there weren't any jazz groups there was only the Beatles so it was the first rock and roll and poetry he read poetry and we played blues and he mentioned this in the paper years later he had a job in Jersey TV I met him when we were big and on tour and he took me back to his apartment I had a girl and he had one that he said you want to meet her Polythene Pam she, she dresses up in polythene which she did in polythene bags and she didn't wear jack boots and kilt I just sort of Lot. She looks like a man. Elaborate. Yes. No, not really. That just polythene pans enough inspiration, isn't it, to start a whole ball game, right? Yeah. So that's what that was. Based on a real it's incident. Kind of make but, the news of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was kind of you know perverted sex in the polythene bag. There was nothing really much to it. It's just looking for something to write about. See it in drag in a polythene bag. You coined this, yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that uh, really sweeping England right now? The phrasing, uh, yeah, 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 on all the songs. Yeah, well, that was the sort of main catchphrase from "She Loves You," uh, but we didn't. We stuck that on. We'd written the song nearly, and then we suddenly needed more, so we had "Yeah, yeah, yeah," and it caught on. You know, they used it for, you know, if you're going to be with it or hip. It's sort of a trademark for your voice now. Yeah, we'll have to write another song with it. Uh, came in through the bathroom window is very good song of Paul's. Was written by him in New York. It was when Paul and I went to America to publicize Apple about two years ago to announce the opening. And we were just in the, the flat we were staying in and he just came out with that line, you know, she came into the bathroom and so he'd had it for years, so he, he eventually finished it. With good lyrics. I don't, it's really hard to explain what they're about. Hmm. Anyway, and Golden Slumbers, which they all, all these link up. Golden Slumbers is another very melodic tune of Paul's. Strings this time, John. Yeah. Um, Paul laid the strings on after we'd finished most of the basic track, you know. Which is very nice. Carry That Weight is um, as if it's part of Golden Slumbers. In fact, Carry That Weight keeps coming in and out of it different times. And the end is just the end. It's just a little uh, sort of sequence which ends it all. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, there's really not much more to be said about that, but uh, we will come back after we... What about uh, Her Majesty? Well, why don't we play the end first and then... Uh, okay, right. Well, then we'll let the silence run and do Oh, yeah, so you're going to do it properly, okay. okay. And uh, you really have to hear all that.
I think a lot of people might be surprised that you sort of dare to take golden slumbers, the well-known lullaby. Golden slumbers kiss your eyes Smiles await you when you rise Sleep pretty baby, do not cry and I will sing a lullaby Cares you know not there for sleep While I o'er you watch to keep Sleep pretty baby And give it a new variation. I I enjoyed it very much. But um, what made you decide to do that? Because the, the Beatles have never done that before, have they? No. Taken another tune or lyrics? No. Well, I'll tell you. I was just playing the piano in Liverpool, my dad's house, and uh, my sister Ruth's piano book. She was learning piano, and you know those sort of with Dear Ken John Peel yeah. and the Golden Slumbers and your old yes, favourites was up on the thing. You know this stand you know there's a little book with all those words in it and stuff so i was just flicking through it and i came to golden slumbers you know so i just started because i can't read music so I, so I didn't know the tune i can't remember the old tune you know <laughs> so i started uh, just playing my tune to it and then i liked the words so i just kept that you know and then it fitted with another bit of song i had which is the verse in between it so i just made that into a song it just happened because i was reading a book was this paul on piano oh he's always on piano you can't get him off Once there was a way to get back homeward. Once there was a way to get back home. Sleep pretty, darling, do not cry. And I will sing a lullaby.
cinema verite guitarist on musician and you have to break down your barriers to be able to hear what I'm playing you know uh, I, it's a nice little bit I played I had it on the back of Abbey Road Paul gave us each a piece you know there's a little break where Paul plays George plays and I play well you listen to it you know um, there's one bit one of those where it stops um, you know, one of those carry that weight and then suddenly it goes boom, boom, boom on the drums and then we all take it in turns to play. I'm the third one on it. The, I have a definite style of playing. I always had, but I was overshadowed. Like, they call about George the invisible singer and the invisible guitarist, you know? Market fab. After 20 seconds of silence, Paul says goodbye with a funny little piece to Her Majesty. And what about the reference to the Queen? What made you put that on the LP? That's caused a lot of surprises. <laughs> Very nice, but it was, you know, a lot of people didn't know it was there. I saw your column in the <laughs> daily newspaper. I wish I could have got a hold of you. That was just, um, I don't know, you know, I was in Scotland. And I was just writing this little tune. You know, I can I can never tell like how tunes come out. 
I just wrote it as a joke, you know. The fact that Her Majesty wasn't isn't listed on the sleeve is uh, is there any particular reason? Sure. Do, we'd like to have a joke at the end, you know, or a surprise, like on the end of what was it, was it Pepper or the Beatles? Um, the Beatles double, just something. Yeah, there was one on the end of Pepper, I can remember. Yeah. For some reason, the final chord was cut off. But here, for the first time, you'll hear the final chord. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she doesn't have a lot to say. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she changes from day to day. I want to tell her that I love her a lot, but I gotta get a belly full of wine. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, someday I'm gonna make a mine. Oh yeah, someday I'm gonna make a mine. The Queen, yeah. The Queen's all right, though. Paul McCartney. No, I think there's not a bad track on it, but my favourites are Come Together. Yeah. I like Something, those ones, and I, and then the long one. Oh, yeah. The whole of the long one, yeah. the, the whole of the end bit. I think that works good. The second side of Abbey Road is my favourite. I love it. There's the bathroom window and all those bits, they weren't songs. Yeah. I mean, they were just all the bits that John and Paul had around that we roped together, you know. And also, it's a great... I got my, the kit I still use to this day. And I, I got skins and got rid of plastic heads, so it's very large in my <laughs> memory. I liked uh, the A side. I never liked that sort of, whatever, pop opera on the other side. Yeah. I think it's junk. Because it was just bits of song thrown together, you know. And uh, I, I can't remember what's on this. They come together, though, I remember. And something's on it. It, it was a... Combined album like Rubber Soul in a way, you know. What I mean, it was uh, together in that way, but it uh, it had no life really. Abbey Road for me, as always with all the albums, I like some of the tracks and I don't like others of the tracks, and it's always been the same. I've never been a a knocked out Beatles fan by any of our albums, you know. I like some of the work we do and some of it I don't. Winner asks John if he feels McCartney coerced him into doing Abbey Road. Well, no, 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 it's not like that. But if it's suggested, I will go along. I'm, I'm, I'm weak as well as strong, you know. And um, I wasn't going to fight for Let It Be because I really couldn't stand it, you know. Now, in his autumn 1980 interview with David Sheff for Playboy, Lennon's attitude about Abbey Road hasn't changed all that much. That album, which everybody praises so much, it was just a, a montage of bits and pieces because we didn't have any pieces, any finished songs, and we hadn't worked together, and all we had was that. Isn't it strange so that you can just throw stuff well, together and things, be so lovely? That's the way things work out, you know. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make any less of the of the tracks because they were never completed songs. They became something else. John always said that he hated the medley on side two, which one would think is sort of predominantly Paul, but actually John contributed quite a large part of the medley. And there was one instance, I think it was um, the polythene Pam and she came in through the bathroom window. Certain songs in the Abbey Road medley weren't actually segued together, they were recorded as one. And John's polythene Pam and Paul's bathroom window were recorded as one. So they must have got together to decide that. And so, you know, he couldn't have been too against it at the time, although he later came out and said that he couldn't stand that sort of thing. It was too contrived for his liking. Producer George Martin. I particularly like the second side of Abbey Road. I like the continuous one, which is what Paul and I wanted to try and do for the whole album, but it didn't work out because John wanted a kind of rock and roll album with individual tracks. John got disenchanted with record production. He didn't really approve of what I'd done and what I was doing. He didn't like messing about, as he called it, and didn't like the pretentiousness, if you like, 
of record production. And I could see his point. He wanted good old-fashioned, plain solid rock, and the hell with it. Let's blast the living daylights out. I personally can't be bothered with strings and things, you know. I like to do it with the group, you know. Yeah, it with whatever, or, or with electronics, you know. I can't be able to go into that hassle with musicians and all that bit, you know, it's such a drag, yeah. trying to get them together, but Paul digs that, so that's his scene. So it became a compromise, so that one side of Abbey Road was very much the way John wanted things, let it all hang out, let's rock a little boy, and the other one was what Paul had accepted from me, which was to try and think in symphonic terms, think in terms of having a first and second subject and having mm. them put in different keys and contrapuntal work even and bringing back themes and, and uh, Paul dug that and he, he mm. quite liked that and it was, that was why, why that side sounds that, as it does. It still wasn't quite what I, what I was looking for but it was going towards it. On to Golden Slumbers. The White Trash have made a single out of this folks. And uh, well, have they used good strings on it? Or? Yeah, they've used strings and they've done some, it's pretty similar to the track we did, except they've done some nice things with a big organ, like a church organ playing a solo or something. That is also rather different for them because they've been enormously sort of gutsy and... Uh, yeah, well, they've uh, done it quite gutsy and the song is sort of vaguely uh, gospel-y in a way. You know, sleep, little darling, don't you cry, all that bit is a bit gospel-y. And uh, were any of you involved with the production of this? Or? Uh, not of the white trash, no, they did it completely. I don't know who produced it, you know. But they had a good star, uh, the Beatles album. <laughs> yes, it's true. So, it's, so uh, they've done a good job of it. I hope they get a hit. Once there was a way To get back home Once there was a way Get back home Sleep in it, darling Do not cry And I will sing a lullaby
Jeff Emmerich, author of Here, There, and Everywhere, My Life Recording the Music of the Beatles. Uh, Jeff, with the advent of such advanced recording technology available today, it's even more amazing over time to think that the Abbey Road album was the first Beatles album to be recorded entirely on 8-track. Uh, why was EMI so behind with the technology? Uh they they just were. I mean, they were just slow in, in, in you know in, in getting better equipment in. Um, other studios, you know, had uh, Trident being the first, I believe, had the eight, eight, first eight track machine. They were just slow. I mean, and then you know, Abbey Road was the first transistorized mixing console, which gave, which I later sort of thinking about and thinking about gave. I first of all, when, when we started to recall the drums and uh, and guitars through that transistorized console, I couldn't get the same impact on the bass drum or the snare or the same sort of bite on the guitar. But there's nothing we could do about it. After about three days, we accepted the sound that I had there, which was a more sort of slightly softer sound. I, I always refer to it as more organic. And then I did realize that if it, those original rhythm tracks had been recorded on tube equipment as we were used to, then the, the, uh, the, the overdubs that would, have, that would have gone onto those tracks would have been a little bit more aggressive, possibly. So in hindsight, it's, it's, uh, it was a good thing because it gave Abbey Road that great sort of, sort of broader texture. And I think it was the first time I was able to use, you know, have proper stereo drums as well, you know. Producer George Martin. The birds tended to record their own items. And in fact, we would work in sometimes in, in different studios at the same time. And I would have uh, Chris Thomas working with me and helping out. So I would sort of be dashing from one studio to another. Uh, on particular tracks, you know, where more forces were needed, then the other boys were coming. Engineer Jeff Emmerich tells us of the Beatles' attitude at the time of the recording. Well, that came together very quickly, within about uh, three weeks, the whole thing. I think it was a question, could be, as I said before, you know, that... Um, the unity wasn't there, that they just wanted to get it over with. It wasn't the same four people. I mean, in the days of Pepper, if Harrison was going to do a, a guitar solo, Paul and John would hang around, you know, maybe to help and give him some inspiration. But when we were doing Abbey Road, they'd just go home and let him get on with it. But that was the last one we ever made, and um, it was a very happy one after all the traumas of Let It Be. It was a nice ending to our relationship. The album Abbey Road. About this time, a rumour was spreading that Paul was dead. Here's George Martin. A rumour started that Paul had died some while back, and this gained tremendous strength for some odd reason, and whispers got around, and people lent support to it. And I was continually being asked if he was alive and so on. Um, a lot of things added up. People, In fact, I started getting letters from people outlining how obvious it was that Paul was dead. You know, mm. I, I began to believe it myself. The, the fact that on Pepper, he, on the back, he was the only one... Uh, of the four of them, n to be not facing the camera. His back was turned to the camera. Um, and he also, in the front of the cover, he was carrying, he, he was wearing a black buttonhole, and everybody was wearing a white or a red one. Um, little things like that, people were sort of reading and saying, oh, well, it's obvious that he's died and the boys are covering it up. Well, if he was dead, he had a Johnny Good impersonator working <laughs> for him because, uh, you know, w this actually happened one afternoon when Paul was around at my place playing the piano and having tea. And uh, we had a big, big laugh about it. But it, it wasn't so much of a laugh when you were working at three in the morning from some little girl in Wisconsin saying, Please, can you tell me if Paul really is alive? Don't say he's dead. Please don't say he's dead. Rumors run wild. Is Paul McCartney of the Beatles dead? News flashes around the world that Paul McCartney of the Beatles 
is dead. find clues leading to Paul's 18-month previous death. The Abbey Road album cover photo hints that the Beatles were in a funeral procession. Paul, of course, being out of step with the living, is the corpse. Clues from the Beatles' clothes were pounced upon. John, up front in white, as the religious funeral figure, followed by Paul Bearer Ringo, in smart black suit and shine shoes. Then Paul, dressed in a shabby, loose burial suit, and finally, George, in jeans and work shirt, as the gravedigger. Fans also interpreted Paul's beardlessness to mean that he was a freshly shaven corpse. He was also the only beetle to carry a cigarette, a sure sign that Paul was by now reduced to ashes. the Abbey Road album cover and more obscure clues spelling death for Paul McCartney. The parked car with its license plate reading 28 if. Paul's age if alive. Beatles recording engineer Ken Scott. I used to walk down Abbey Road every day and see that Volkswagen car there with the number plate, what is it, UR? 28 if? 28, 28 if, something like that, yeah. And it was there every single day. The number three strangely placed in front of the group's name, meaning one member missing. Believers said the list of signs is endless, but no one could fully explain if Paul was in the grave. What clever imitator had taken his place? 
Do these two tracks both sound like Paul? Or is the latter vocal some unpublicized replacement? Vocalize and come off as Paul McCartney on Abbey Road. Who indeed asked the very much alive and married Paul McCartney? Quoting Mark Twain by saying that rumors of his death were greatly exaggerated. But the press persisted, and Paul eventually agreed to become the subject of a Life magazine cover story to settle the death dispute once and for all. But did it? Rumors still circulated. The Paul photos were a hoax, believers said, drummed up to protect the Beatle image. I don't know what I thought about it. I just thought it was a, a bit of a laugh, but it was a bit of a sick joke. You know, that's all. John Lennon. I know a lot of people thought I did it you know, to push Abbey Road, but yeah. it didn't really need that much pushing. I couldn't. I wouldn't never have come up with that as an idea. It wasn't the end for Paul, as many assumed, and the Beatles denied ever cluing anyone into a phony McCartney death. It was all trumped up, said Ringo. I was in England, and it came out of L.A. Some D I think it came out of L.A. Some DJs worked it all out with the album cover, so of course we all got into the covers, and if you look at them, it's right. I mean, it's very true. I mean, if you want to take it that way, you know... Paul had the black rose on, and Abbey Road, he had no shoes on or something, which means, you know, in Sicily, he's dead or whatever it means. And you could see all that, but, I mean, we didn't do that, you know. That was just some... And, but we couldn't prove it wrong, because they were saying he was... The guy we had in the band was a substitute, so we couldn't do a photo with him or anything to prove he was alive, because they say, well, you're just with the substitute, you know. I mean, it was just another craziness, that's all. Beatles road manager Mal Evans. All the things that contributed to that were so easily explained. We did Magic Mystery Tour. Your mother should know the, the end. They come down the stairs dancing, you know. People ask me, why has Paul got a black carnation? The other three got red carnations. The explanation's simple. The florist sent three red carnations and one black one. On the Abbey Road cover, Paul's seen walking across the road with bare feet, which is, I'm told, signifies death in Italy. Yeah. Then again, the explanation is simple. With the photographer and myself, we set up a, a ladder in the middle of the road. And when it's time to take the actual shot, you go in the studio and you say, Right, fellas, ready for you. They put their instruments down at a suitable time. They walk out. Now, Paul takes his shoes off in the studios. He's comfortable with that shoes, this carpeted. And he walks across the road. They walk three ways that way. They walk back three ways, you know. And you use the shot that you like the best. There's a car in the shot that says 28 if, some people say he would be 28 if he'd lived. I tried for two hours to find the owner of the car to get out the shot. There's so many things that could be explained, but people won't listen. They don't want to know. It's much more exciting to think that the Beatles are trying to pull the wool over the world's eyes by substituting someone because Paul died. I heard the radio the other day I heard something that blew my mind It was something that I didn't even believe at all The news concerned itself with a young man Everybody knows And they said that he went running Taking off his clothes And I said, not so long, Paul We ain't just see you So long, Paul 
things are beyond me you know I, mean, I believe that any like with this packet you can read something into that if you want but and everybody nobody sees the same picture and you can all lyrics mean everything people want but there was never any specific turn me on dead man or the, the other famous one that i won't repeat that where you played it backward and got a secret message our things are pretty straightforward what it says it means just about what it says. If it's imagery, it's imagery. If it's straight lyrics, it's straight lyrics, you know. Or was it cranberry sauce? Oh, remember you were supposed to be dead? And uh, there were all these clues, like uh, you'd play some song backward, and it said, Paul is dead, and everyone thought you were dead? Yeah. That, that was just a hoax, right? Yeah, I wasn't really dead. Right. information or to contact the show visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com also visit at yesterdaypod on twitter and search yesterday and today podcast on facebook see you next time
I'm Paul Kaminsky. And I'm James Kaminsky. And we are the co-hosts of the Third Men Podcast. We are a Jack White history podcast where we go over the White Stripes, Third Man Records, the list goes on. And occasionally, we do a funny voice or two. So you're going to probably want to get used to that. Or turn it off. Whatever your preference. Or whatever turns you on. <laughs> hey now, you're an all-star, because occasionally we'll do an all-star podcast. We did do an entire Smash Mouth episode once, that is true. <laughs> we are every other week on Wednesdays, and we are available on iTunes and really wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so why don't you come on and find yourself a little home here with us? We promise we'll be weird roommates. If I want to do the dishes without my pants on, that's my deal. That was weird, see? We weren't even lying. 